Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Good. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today, uh, especially joining me today from across the pond. So uh, appreciate you making some time. Uh, you were um, very helpful to us when you flagged something that we had seen, but had really not focused on. And that's the uh, last month, the June 28th joint alert with FinCEN and the Department of Commerce's uh, Bureau of Industry and Security. Uh, obviously very useful, uh, not something we'd seen before. And I thought maybe we could spend some time today talking about why it's important and some of the uh, the practical advice given by both agencies regarding um, uh, red flags and that sort of thing. So t talk a bit about how this is unique and sort of the uh, the goal of the alert. And then let's walk through uh, some of the, uh, again, the practical advice uh, for the AML community so that they can uh, put this in into practice and training or you know, hiring outside firms to help them, whatever it might be. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to the discussion. It's certainly a unique beast, this joint alert. Uh, FinCEN and the Department of Commerce have historically issued guidance to industry for, for decades, but not necessarily targeting, uh, from the FinCEN perspective, uh, exporters, and from the commerce perspective, financial institutions. So this is really one of the more unique joint alerts that the U.S. government has issued around uh, the nexus between export controls and uh, where financial institutions may may play in that space. And really at a high level, the purpose of the alert is to facilitate the U.S. government's um, continuing crackdown on export control evasion tied back into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, earlier this year, as we all know, Russia invaded Ukraine. And one of the key responses, in addition to OFAC sanctions and other global sanctions against the Russians, uh, the Department of Commerce in the United States really expanded in an unpre uh, unprecedented way uh, the extent to which uh, export controls are now targeting the Russian defense industrial base, uh, as well as the Russian economy writ large, and to a certain extent, Belarus as well. Uh, so at a high level, this joint alert is just a continuation of that U.S. policy. Uh, but the U.S. government is recognizing that financial institutions play a role in trade. And as a result, they're clearly looking to uh, use this alert to educate uh, that sector in a way that that perhaps they're not necessarily thinking about at scale already. You know, I think um, I've mentioned to you before, I, I teach a class uh, at George Mason, a graduate class on money laundering, terrorism, and corruption. And one of the things you tell the students is, if we were teaching this class 20 years ago or 25 years ago, it would be mainly focused on drug trafficking and then, of course, after 9-11, terrorism. But the extent to which the AML community needs to be aware of so many things, obviously sanctions is now a, a close adjacency to AML, you know, uh, human trafficking, wildlife traffic, all sorts of space that you're very familiar with. But the the notion that export control evasion would be something that needs to be on the radar of AML practitioners, need to be on the radar for financial institutions, obviously. But I think that's really both interesting and very compelling. Uh, part of the uh, uh, joint alert does, as you say, tell institutions what they need to look for in the hopes that they'll be filing suspicious activity reports 
the other thing in that that uh, jumped out at me as again not being well aware of. I knew commerce has a role here, but not obviously the, the depth of their role. Some of the commodities of concern. So you look at that list of things that, that obviously, because of the war in Ukraine, uh, become you know very uh, very important in terms of military defense. But they talk about uh, these these various items that they're fearful are getting. Uh, you know, the evasion of the export controls are leading this uh, you know, to, to harm the Ukrainians and its cameras, its integrated circuits, oil field equipment. Uh, talk a little bit about that, because obviously, you know, there's experts in this space. The AML practitioner generally isn't. What can they glean from this besides the obvious to put these things into training? That's a great question. And so the alert does a few things, I think, really, really well. And the first is they explicitly list out um, eight or nine technologies that represent the biggest proliferation risks. So what that means in, in this context is the Russian uh, defense industrial base, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Russian intelligence services, et cetera, um, bypassing U.S. export controls um, through transshipment jurisdictions around the world to procure uh, dual-use goods from, from U.S. firms. And as a result of that global nature uh, from a proliferation pathway perspective, uh, the, the Department of Commerce has really targeted uh, those key choke point technologies that the U.S. government believes are critical for the Russian, uh, the continued Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So one thing, though, John, that I would just point out is that when you go through this list and you're a financial institution and you're thinking about how to take this guidance and actually do something with it, I would pay careful attention to one part of the alert that states that this is not a complete listing of commodities sought by or prohibited for end users in Russia and Belarus. Right. And the reason why I would just highlight that is because um, over the last few years, the U.S. government has really expanded the scope of export controls through this thing called the military end use end user rule which I won't bore everyone on the podcast today with something that's a bit outside of the scope for this discussion. All I would say, though, is the U.S. government now is thinking about if you're selling a thing like a pencil or a jacket and it ultimately supports the Russian military, uh, that could be subject to controls. And therefore, uh, with this FinCEN joint alert, uh, that type of activity, it doesn't matter if it's controlled or not, if that commodity is being used by the Russian Ministry of Defense or the Russian Armed Services or uh, the equivalent in Belarus to support its invasion, it could be subject to control and possible enforcement. Um, so the joint alert does issue some very specific in the weeds guidance on specific commodities, but it also has a catch all. And I think industry should really pay attention to, um, you know, in general, exports that involve any technology going um, into these denied jurisdictions. You, you know, um, you have a strong background. You served in national security positions within the government. You're currently also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. So you are uniquely uh, situated in terms of understanding where commerce and security sort of intersect, besides obviously your knowledge of the financial sector. One of the other parts of the alert that jumped out at me that is uh, more common in terms of financial institution understanding is trade finance. So there's a whole section in here they categorize as applying a risk-based approach to trade finance. And, and obviously, uh, you know, trade-based money laundering has been an issue for a number of years. It's still obviously an extremely high-risk area. Um, in, in addition to what you've already mentioned, 
talk a little bit about the the alerts reference to that because it does um, make clear that some of these exports are definitely should be uh, potentially vis- visible to financial institutions. So you know you're not going to be hiring all these experts in exports. Uh, you know, but being under understanding this and having a better appreciation for this, that's where these alerts become important. So any sort of guidance or statements, but this particularly uh, jumped out at me. What what's your take on on that section of the alert? Well, for those that have spent a lot of time thinking about trade based money laundering, I would take those lessons that you've learned and gleaned from those experiences and apply them to this joint alert with BIS. And the reason for that is the same types of red flags that can be um, caught when looking for trade uh, trade based money laundering are, are, are basically the same things that Vincent and, and BIS have have uh, advised here as, as something that financial institutions should be cautious about. So that's things in the trade-based money laundering world as an example, right? A famous one with students all over the country is if you um, are facilitating a payment for one pair of jeans, but that one pair of jeans cost a million dollars. Well, something right. something's a little off with that, right? So right. If, if in this situation, if you've got an aircraft component that uh, a company, a U.S. company normally sells for $1,000, but you're seeing orders of magnitude higher being paid for that commodity, that's a red flag. In a lot of ways, the guidance that's uh, issued with this joint alert is the same that's been, uh, you know, with industry for decades in the trade-based money laundering space. Uh, so something to just really kind of dive into, I guess, a bit more if you're if you're thinking about these issues at a financial institution. But in reality, you'll start seeing that there's trends and themes that have been around for a long time. They've just inserted new nouns into the guidance. Yeah, I, that that's obviously completely accurate. I looking at some of the red flags here, you know, some of them, you're right. You just sort of um, plug and play like last minute changes to transactions that are associated with an originator or beneficiary that's located in Russia or Belarus. Well, certainly I think that would raise at least a a cautionary uh, uh, yellow flag to take a look at things. But I, I saw things like transactions that involve entities with little or no web presence. That's that to me was interesting. And, you know, uh, rapid shifts to new purchases of transactions involving uh, restricting luxury goods. There's a whole host of things here that when you read them, you go, oh, well, that makes sense. But putting them all together, obviously, is is the way to, again, improve your training and your and your due diligence and your vigilance here. What of those um, red flags jumped out at you besides all of them being valuable, but any in in particular that look new to you, somebody who is well versed in this area? There's two things that jump out to me. The first is the U.S. government's continued targeting of the wealthy Russian oligarchs. And so that's things like export controls targeting luxury goods, furniture, purses, uh, high-end clothing. Uh, These are uh, missiles aimed directly at uh, the Russian oligarch lifestyle. And this is one of the few tools that the U.S. government can impose uh, that will, uh, you know, impose that cost theoretically against uh, these oligarchs. So that's that's something number one that I would flag is that when people think about export controls, they think about dual use technologies and missiles and tanks. And uh, this guidance goes well beyond that to include those types of luxury goods that uh, most people don't necessarily typically think about when they're considering export controls and implementing those policies and procedures within either a corporate or a financial institution. 
The second I would say is how specific the guidance is with respect to targeting um, some of the Russian intelligence services procurement activities. One of the red flags, number 15, explicitly highlights uh, quote companies uh, involved that display a certificate from the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation, the FSB, which allows these companies to work on projects classified as a state secret. Well, if, if I was a financial institution or if I was a corporate, my first question would be, well, how in the world would I know which company is allowed to do business with the Russian intelligence services? Uh, the, the second point, though, that I would just make is that uh, that is data that's publicly available. And, you know, companies are being asked by this guidance to screen for that type of risk. And right. if you're not, you just need to ask yourself, uh, you know, how else are we going to catch this type of behavior? Yeah, yeah, you, you know, that struck me. Uh, 17 struck me too. New or existing accounts and transactions by individuals with previous convictions for violating U.S. export control laws. So that information is also available either through uh, a third party or publicly. How would you get that sort of information? Exactly. So there is publicly available information on this that you can incorporate into a gray list screening or denied party screening system that you use. There's also um, data that's available through the government's uh, website itself. So there's the BIS entity list. There's the unverified list. Um, and these lists are publicly available and you can explore them uh, and download the file if you're so inclined uh, from commerce. And these outline those companies around the world that are subject to not just restrictions with respect to Russia and Belarus, but globally, those companies that have been subject to penalties over the last few decades. So this information is publicly available. And if you wanted to screen beyond that, uh, there's certainly third parties to include. Caron um, has extensive data on this capability that companies and financial institutions use to screen uh, you know, this risk daily. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the tail end of the alert goes into the... Uh the practical, and that is how to file SARS on this. And, you know, obviously one of the constant challenges for the users of the SAR data is how the information is filled out. So they give you some direction here on how to fill it out, what to put in the narrative. T talk a bit about uh, advice to filers. Uh, obviously, you're going to look at the red flags. You're going to make decisions based on, uh, you know, after identifying one of the activities that are listed as a red flag that doesn't automatically mean a SAR of course it means you know you're doing additional due diligence but then you make a decision to file what's the recommendations that FinCEN has regarding filing SARS uh, or any other BSA related reports on these potential illegal activities of evading exports uh, export controls yeah, so the guidance is is pretty clear on on what are some of the red flags, and then there's uh, some some great text that outlines exactly what uh, you know financial institutions should consider when they're following their their SARS. And I think at its core, FinCEN doesn't expect all financial institutions to become overnight export experts on Russian uh, export control evasion. I do think, though, that uh, when you're filling out those SARS and you're able to um, identify which red flag you, you think is, is relevant, that type of data is, is useful for uh, the folks that review those, um, you know, those SARS and are, are using this guidance to support broader initiatives with the U.S. government to include identifying export control evasion that's happening within you know, the Department of Commerce's uh, realm. Uh, as a reminder to industry, it's, you know, commerce is not an expert at SARS. And, 
this is a new world for them, and uh, industry will will play a, a key role in helping the U.S. government actually implement some of this guidance. So, um, obviously, besides this, uh, OFAC has been very active, uh, as is some of your former agencies that you either worked with or worked for, in terms of what's going on uh, with sanctioned individuals. What's what's your take generally about um, sort of the impact? And and my question is, it's not so much trying to pull something in from out from left field, but I was listening this morning to some news reports about, uh, you know, Russia's are going to reduce their oil uh, distribution from 40% to 20%. And uh, the Russians are saying that this, this is all due to the, to the sanctions, which of course I don't, I don't buy for a second, but what, what do you think the value has been of sanctions specifically to, uh, to the oligarchs? I mean, I, I, my, my prejudice is I've always believed that sanctions are a valuable national security tool. Are they all the same? No, but I, I think the use of sanctions is, is uh, you know, well understood in our community. But what's your take as somebody who's seen it from all sides, the, the value of sanctions in general, but specifically as regards to the, to the Russian attacks in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think at, at a high level, the U.S. government is still trying to conceptualize the right way to strategically utilize sanctions or other economic statecraft measures like export controls, uh, the entity listing process, et cetera, to target some of the actors that are responsible for the activity in Ukraine. With respect to the Russian oligarchs, the policy objective with that ostensibly was to uh, limit the oligarchs' exposure to Western capital markets. And the sanctions themselves have been quite quite uh, efficient at that. Uh, Thousands of companies have are now subject to the OFAC 50% rule that were not otherwise subject. And as a result, you know, that capital flow is is being affected. And so from that perspective, it it's it's working to an extent. But is that ultimately changing the behavior of what Putin is doing? Uh, I think that's debatable. And so some of these other designations more recently uh, were broadly considered earlier in the invasion, but only implemented after some of the other measures were not quite as effective, I think, as policymakers had hoped. So these are things like sanctioning the Russian defense industrial base. It's one thing to apply uh, broad uh, export control restrictions against uh, military end users in Russia. It's an entirely different thing to utilize OFAC authorities to uh, limit uh, you know, corporates and financial institutions' ability to, to support that activity. Um, and as a reminder to everyone, I would just note that the difference between export controls and the difference between sanctions at, at a very high level is strict liability. And so there's a, a large precedent for OFAC um, going after, with enforcement actions, those companies and financial institutions, regardless if they knew or not, they were violating sanctions. Uh, we haven't yet seen that from BIS. Uh, there's talk that they will increase this enforcement activity. Um, and I think this FinCEN joint alert is one step in that direction. But at a high level, uh, we're seeing the U.S. government increasingly utilize alerts like this, sanctions and export controls to move the policy objectives forward. Whether or not they work overall, I think that's still to be seen. And so for those that haven't looked at the alert, it's uh, June 28, 2022. FinCEN and the U.S. Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there's information on how to file SARS, and they specifically ask that in 
the filing field, SAR uh, field two, to include in the narrative the key term uh, FIN 2022 Russia BIS. And so that just helps the um, the users of the data pull the data. And that's consistent with some other uh, SAR recommendations re regarding how to, how to uh, fill out the narrative. But this, um, this alert should be as anything else that comes out from FinCEN and certainly other agencies that are in our community should be distributed internally. What I would suggest, uh, if you work for a financial institution, you advise a financial institution, don't just send the alert, give them some idea of why it's relevant to your institution. Obviously, this would be not necessarily limited to, to multinational financial institutions because mid-sized banks do a lot of work in this space too, but it'll be more relevant to the bigger institutions. But I would still make clear based on what Kit just said, and that is that this is a unique alert coming from these two entities that hasn't happened before. I'd still make smaller financial institutions aware that this is out there and just flag it as they would any any alert. So um, all of that becomes pretty important. Let me uh, get you out of here on this, Kit. And again, Kit Conklin is uh, vice president at Karen. He leads uh, the global corporates and financial institutions on ESGs, sanctions, export controls. And as I mentioned, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and he's done a lot of, he's been in various national security positions within the government, U.S. government as well. He's kind enough to share his insight today, and he's done that with us before. So we really Really appreciate it. But the last thing I want to ask you, uh, the, uh, the the House passed a couple of weeks ago uh, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is something they did last year as well, a number of AML-related provisions. And uh, obviously, there's no way to know if these things are going to make it to the to the finish line, although if it's in the NDAA, it's probably a good chance it will. It's over at the Senate now. Not asking you to, to weigh in on the the appropriateness or uh, 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 whether you support or don't support. But there's a series of provisions that uh, that were built off of what they called the Enablers Act, which was a, uh, a freestanding legislative proposal last November that would have added um, uh, lawyers, accountants, the, those that create trusts under the BSA, um, which is something that has been debated for, for a long period of time, certainly F FATF has talked about gatekeepers and the need to keep them under the AML laws and regulations. There was mod modifi modifications were made before it ended up passing, which it doesn't include those categories uh, completely. But if you are transacting certain businesses, creating trust, doing certain things, you could potentially be covered. Long-winded way of saying that it will ch change some of the dynamics but it will take a long period of time. What's your general view on that, other than the obvious, that it obviously will add to more uh, compliance requirements, resources, and all of that, but what's your take on that? If it does get through, FinCEN's gonna have a lot of work on its hands, as will Treasury, to sort of craft where these, uh, my words, where these buckets will be going forward, but it's definitely gonna change um, an infrastructure that I've been involved in for decades, and much more dramatically than we've ever seen before. What's your what's your initial thought about that? And again, I know it may not get through, but it it looks like it, there'll at least be some strong debate on the Senate side in next, uh, or at least early September. Yeah, uh, you know another another good question here is that 
I think this is a continuation of the U.S. government's recognition that there are loopholes within broader economic statecraft um, policies and pieces of legislation whereby uh, corruption, export controls, sanctions, AML are all coalescing around these broader new pieces of guidance. And this is an example whereby you have FCPA and BSA coming all together um, to create the, the next wave of compliance requirements. And in my mind, this is all related to not just uh, AML in the historical sense, but a continuation of, of all of these various authorities using uh, the government using to target, in this case, um, you know, the holes that they've seen for years that have been exploited whether rightly or wrongly. But in my mind, this is just at a high level, another opportunity for the US government to close some of these regulatory loopholes that have existed for, for decades. And it's a game changer. Whether or not it gets through, uh, you know, to be determined. But I think in general, if it does, and it, it is looking, um, as you mentioned on the Senate side, there's certainly gonna be some strong debate on this, but if it does get through, wow, it's gonna be a game changer with respect to what's required by industry and financial institutions. But in my mind, it's not, um, it, it's an evolution, not a complete you know, rewriting of the script from a compliance perspective. Dick Conklin from Karen, thanks so much for your time. Uh, safe travels back to the States and we'll be talking with you soon. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.